from Kirkco Media. So what you gonna do about it? Do you know what the definition of a mass shooting is? It's a single incident in which case four or more people are shot, not including the shooter. So far in 2021, the U.S. has had 225 of them. 225 mass shootings. I know, we're numb to numbers like this. But here's another number. So far in 2021, more than 17,000 people have died from gun-related violence. More than 100 Americans are killed every day by gun violence. Now on Meet Me in the Middle, we have to explore all sides. To a point. We'll dig into the Second Amendment in a minute, but we do need to face reality about the concept of new gun laws and whether that's going to do anything. So let's start here. We have over 300 million guns already in circulation in this country. So how are we to create regulations that could affect the likelihood of guns ending up in the wrong hands? You know, mass shooters are people who basically know that they're going to die in the process. Is it reasonable that gun regulations could significantly change the ever more horrible trends here? According to the Gallup polls, 65% of Americans want stricter gun control. Although this is weird, in 1990, 78% of Americans wanted stricter gun control. But either way, in a democracy, it still sounds like it should happen then, right? Well, do you know what the NRA spends filling politician campaign coffers every year? In 2016, according to the Federal Election Commission, the NRA spent more than $30 million on behalf of the Trump campaign alone. In 2020, the NRA even spent $12 million on anti-Joe Biden ads. So are you still wondering why your elected politicians haven't pushed through new gun regulations? All arguments around guns eventually lead to quoting and defining the rights outlined in the Second Amendment. So in days like these, it seems appropriate for us to bring back one of my favorite conversations with renowned UCLA constitutional law professor Eugene Volokh and our Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Ed Larson. It's about the history and realities around the rights to bear arms. We actually argue a lot on this one, so get ready. This is politics. Meet me in the middle. I'm Bill Curtis. Ed, I'd like to start by asking you to give us a brief history lesson on the Second Amendment, its original intention, a bit on who drove it, and how it's changed meaning over the years. The Second Amendment, like anything else, was a period of its time, and it really wasn't this time. It was a period of the late 1700s. And at that time, we had the immediate history that the states were the repository of effective militia that had stood up to British tyranny and were the backbone of the revolution. They led the revolution. And so when they got to writing the Bill of Rights, the Bill of Rights was viewed as a limitation on the federal government, not on the state governments. And one right you wanted to have is the states have a right to have a militia. And so in a way to protect states' rights, and it's absolutely clear this is what they were thinking of at the time, there's no doubt at all in the history of following the drafting and passing of this amendment, they were trying to protect states' rights and in that way protect individual rights. And that included people having the right to have guns in the context of having a state militia, because the amendment is clearly worded in that respect. Well, it's funny you said that it talks about the rights of the states. It actually says quite specifically who has the right. It's the people. It's a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, to be sure mm -hmm. it says that. The right of the people to keep and bear right. arms shall not be infringed. So it's clear who the, the people, rights not holder. each person. Well, remember, the people is, are also the ones mentioned in the First Amendment, the right of the people peaceably to assemble. 
Nobody thinks that that's just the right of state governments. Because the First Amendment doesn't say to protect the states, we have to give this right. The Second Amendment clearly says it in the context of having a state militia, and it would never have passed if it hadn't had that introductory provision. Would it have passed if the arms were further defined? It wouldn't have passed but for in the context of protecting the state. So the Second Amendment says the right of the people. And again, the First Amendment says the right of the people. The Fourth Amendment, Searches and Seizures, talks about the right of the people. There was a pre-existing right to have arms. It was in the English Bill of Rights. Mm -hmm. It was limited to Protestants. It was subject to a specific language authorizing parliamentary regulation because the British rights were subject to parliamentary regulation. They're only protections against the king. But that was obviously not a right of states. There were no states in England. England had a unitary government, not a federal government. Shortly before the Second Amendment was written, state constitutions also had right to bear arms provisions. Pretty clear they weren't rights of states. The Pennsylvania and the Vermont Constitution, for example, talked about that. Today, 44 of the 50 state constitutions have a right to bear arms provision. That, it seems to me, can't be a right of the states. Why would a state bill of rights protect the right of the states? And it's quite clear also that a free state, a free state in the language of of the, the legal language and the political language of the time, meant roughly what we would call today a free country. meaning places where there's not tyranny. So really what was going on is there was a right secured to the people to keep and bear arms. One of the rationales, an important rationale, is to prevent tyranny. And that was through having a militia, which at the time wasn't a national guard. And I think we'd agree on this. At the time, the militia was basically the armed citizenry. The first Militia Act of 1792 defined the militia to be, as I recall, uh, all white males from age 18 to 45. So this was not just like a small national is guard the, type group. Is militia by its nature a group of people in a state or is it the single individual? The militia is the citizenry who are armed as a as a means of, among other things, protecting the pro- pro- protecting a state as an organized group. So, yeah, the well-regulated militia would, without doubt, have been an organized group. But the people who have a right to keep and bear arms. Those were people. That was not, it, it could have been written as the right of the militia to keep and bear arms or the right of the state to possess arms. Certainly, the framers understood that states could have rights. It just, this wasn't written as that. And what's more, throughout the 19th century, with very few exceptions, there was one case, State v. Buzzard from Arkansas that took this view. But other than that, you look at, at court decisions, there were plenty. Uh, throughout the 1800s, it was understood as an individual right. Now, a right that was subject to some regulation. So, for example, well, there's, there were there's bans the on concealed carry. Well, well, no, well, there is a pivotal point. I think uh, there are two questions. One is, is it an individual right or is it a right only of states or of militia? I think the answer was pretty clear to me that it was an individual right. Now, then the this second is question. one we're going to fundamentally disagree on, and I should say this here. I'm a legal historian. I've read all those documents. I've read them all. I totally agree that many states did, sure, many state constitutions did guarantee an individual right to, to bear arms. Absolutely. But when we were talking about the Second Amendment, which is what you ask about, the Second Amendment here was used during the election of 1800. One of the things that forced through the election of Jefferson was the direct threat of Virginia and Pennsylvania to raise their militias to make sure that Jefferson, not Aaron Burr, became president. The governors actually called out their militias to enforce that. So there was a state militia aspect to it that was critical. Now, certainly states protected their individual rights to bear arms. I agree with Eugene on that completely. When you say bear arms, define arms. If the the Congress could 
get around the protection of the states by limiting individual rights to bear arms, then they could effectively undercut these state militias. The goal here was to make sure that the states and the people could defend themselves against a rogue government. Correct. More on the Second Amendment and gun control in just a minute. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. We continue now with our encore edition of Politics Meet Me in the Middle. We've kind of migrated the Second Amendment, the NRA, the lobbyists, all the arguments that we have in today's world. Um, Maybe you could tell us a little about the Heller case and how that kind of formed our view of the Second Amendment. I could talk about the Heller case, and I will, but as a practical matter, I don't think the Supreme Court is doing a whole lot to effectively change a rational view of how this would apply. Well, they haven't done a, a whole lot yet, certainly. It's a, it's, it's, they take a pragmatic, and if, if a person wants to have atomic weapons, they'd say you can't have atomic weapons. They'd say you can't? You, you cannot. cannot. Or where, you where cannot does it have bump stocks. Because they would say, if a, the federal government says you can't have atomic weapons. Isn't bearing can't arms, can't I have a, a, a weapon of mass destruction? The, this, well, but, but wait a minute. If your position is that, oh, the Second Amendment secures states' rights, then... According to your argument, then, the states could have atomic weapons. But you seem to, I mean, I take it you you think that they wouldn't. And I think that's in part because it's understood that all of these provisions are read in some measure in context. And in fact, if it is an individual right, arms would refer to the kinds of arms that an individual person would generally possess, whether yes. acting as a soldier or whether right. acting uh, well, uh, so as, that was, as a citizen. That was a good definition, himself. Eugene. Uh, the type of arms that an individual would possess. Right. So So these are usually... I think the argument that right Mm -hmm. now is in the streets Mm -hmm. that I'd like to talk about here in the middle is what are the types of arms that are reasonable for us to permit the individual to possess? I think we saw a little bit of that recently when the current administration banned bump stocks because I, I suppose the Supreme Court, I assume the Supreme Court will uphold that and rule that doesn't violate the Second Amendment, because I think they're going to look at each of these things. And But if somebody tried to ban individuals from having hunting rifles, they'd say, well, that doesn't seem to follow the Second Amendment. So let me tell you what we see from lower court cases. Now, it's not completely clear that's the way the Supreme Court will come out. But we have a good deal of experience in lower court federal cases. We also see a good deal of experience uh, from state court cases interpreting state constitutions which indubitably secure an individual right. I can tell you, rightly or wrongly, but courts generally say that if you totally ban a kind of gun, especially a kind of gun, a large class of guns that are in common use, such as handguns, that's unconstitutional. Likewise, there's a Supreme Court case that pretty strongly suggests, and lower courts agree, that if you ban even somewhat rarer guns, but a broad category, stun guns, electric weapons, so mostly non-lethal weapons. That's unconstitutional. But generally speaking, if uh, there is a ban on particular kinds of guns that leaves citizens with broad access to comparable weapons, 
so such as bans on these so-called assault weapons, those have been upheld. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that's necessarily right. Lots of people I know agree with that decision. Lots of people I know disagree with that decision. But descriptively, if you look at how courts have actually interpreted it, what they say is, more or less, if you do something that really seriously interferes with people's ability uh, to keep and bear arms, such as banning all guns or banning all handguns or even banning stun guns, which are a separate and important class of weapons, that's unconstitutional. Whereas if you say, well, you can't possess uh, uh, bump stocks or you can't... Uh, assault uh, weapons. Uh, uh, or you can't, again, I always say so-called assault yeah, weapons so-called. because that is actually not a helpful label in many ways, which I'm happy to discuss. Uh, that's constitutional. Mm-hmm. So then the question is whether it's a good idea or not. Is that part of the Supreme Court's responsibility to decide no, no, what is no, a good no, idea no. or not? No, I think it's part of our responsibility as citizens to decide. And it's part of legislators' responsibilities. I think uh, as to this, I think it would, actually my view is generally speaking, it makes sense for the Supreme Court to give legislatures a considerable amount of latitude in restricting kinds of guns that are possessed so long as it doesn't substantially burden people's ability to defend themselves with guns generally. So again, I think those decisions that uphold the bans on assault weapons are probably correct, even though those bans are unsound laws, they're bad laws. At least at this point, I don't think they're unconstitutional laws. Eugene, how did you get here today? Uh, I got here on my car. You drove? Yes. Does it say anywhere in the Constitution what kind of process you should go through in order to be able to use a weapon like, oh, I don't know, a car? So the answer is, if you want it, so the the answer is it doesn't say anything about that in the Constitution. But I've certainly heard people often say guns should be regulated like cars. And if they were, that would be very close to what many gun rights activists very much like. The fact is, we feel that cars can be dangerous to society. No doubt. handled in As an appropriate guns. way. So we're As very careful with the way we allow people to bring them off their property and drive them in public places. Uh, well, uh, in fact... We're pretty careful. In California... Possession of gun in public places is vastly, vastly more heavily regulated than possession of a car in a public place. You don't need to register a car in order to keep it on your own private property. Likewise, you don't need to register a gun in order to keep it at home, at least under federal law. Some states do require it. In the great majority of states that allow concealed carry by any law-abiding adult, you actually do need a license. Now, whether it covers registration of a particular gun, whether the license is tied to the car, remember, for car registration, it's really for tax purposes. The reason you're registering your car is uh, chiefly so you have to pay the registration tax. And but they you check do need to see license. what kind of tickets you've gotten in the past, if you owe any money. You have a background check, in fact, don't you? You have a check for your license. As opposed to guns, where you have a background check for buying that. That well, is the, that's the, you, that's the, the federal the law. The problem is you don't always have a background check. There can be a gun show. Right. I can get there by sitting right. in my car right. for the next two hours. Right. There can be a gun show just outside of California. I can buy a gun without any kind so, of license. Right. Just like, again, if you want to possess a car on your private property... You don't need a background check. I don't think you need registration. You might need to retitle your car. I'm not sure. However, if you want to drive your car in a public place, then you do need to registration. And again, in most states that have concealed carry licenses broadly available, you need to actually get the license. And that also involves a background check. It involves a background check that's more aggressive than the background check that's done for cars. Now, just to make an observation here, we started out this conversation on the on the Second Amendment. 
And the Second Amendment, I don't think, was designed to be pragmatic like these state rules, what various rights the states have. I think if you look at the entire Bill of Rights, the purpose of the entire Bill of Rights was to protect against federal government excess. What you're mostly talking about is what the states do as a pragmatic matter to regulate guns within their own states. And I think that's mostly outside the purview, and the courts have acted this way, mostly outside the purview of what the Second Amendment speaks to. Well, we've got to take a 30-second break here, and we'll come right back and talk about the controversial NRA and try to find a middle ground for reasonable gun control. Hi, I'm Robert Ross, host of Cars That Matter. You might be wondering what makes a car matter, and I have a feeling you already know the answer. Some cars have changed history. Some you can hear a mile away. Some have lines that make your heart skip a beat. If a car has ever made you look twice, then I think you know the ones that matter. Join me as I speak with designers, collectors, and market experts about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. Cars That Matter, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Politics Meet Me in the Middle. I'm Bill Curtis. And again, I'm joined by my co-host, Pulitzer Prize-winning author, historian, and lecturer, Ed Larson. And our guest, of course, is the UCLA constitutional law professor, Eugene Volick. I'm actually not arguing with the idea that someone is uh, a hunter and wants to go out within the confines of the law and, and hunt in the places and the times where that is permitted. And I'm, I'm not arguing with the fact that someone can have a handgun to protect themselves in the event that uh, they're somehow threatened. I'm referring more to the NRA and their unwillingness to consider what I would have to say is the most important word in the English language, at least for contracts. The word is reasonable. And I think that we're supposed to be, with our governance, we're supposed to be reasonable in our thought process. And so let's go all the way back to the Second Amendment and talk about our right to bear arms and put the word reasonable in there somewhere, because I think we have the right to bear reasonable arms for a reasonable purpose under reasonable circumstances. And I think as a practical matter, the Supreme Court hasn't limited that. Where that battle well, no, they haven't limited anything at all. You can own all of this stuff. So, Rapid-fire no, machine guns no, are permitted no. in many states. No, so the Supreme Court specifically said that machine gun bans are constitutional. That's specifically right. there in Heller. They're very heavily regulated under federal law. They have been since the late 1930s. New machine guns have been essentially outlawed under federal law since the mid-1980s. I'm referring more to the type of gun that can deliver uh, numerous bullets in a very but short that is, every, that is basically every gun. And uh, the so-called assault weapons are actually not materially uh, more rapid fire than others. They still deliver one bullet per trigger pull. That's what makes them not machine guns. Uh, now, it's true you can pull the trigger many, many times. You can do the same with and your handgun. And you don't have to reload. And you don't have to reload because they've got a magazine just like a handgun. You don't have to reload because they have a magazine. Now, but as to reasonableness, uh, first, I think the NRA thinks its position is reasonable because it actually thinks, maybe they're wrong, but they actually thinks the gun controls of the government or that people are proposing would actually not work. They may be mistaken, but that's their reason. How so? I'm interested. Well, so, so let me give you an example. People talk about these bans on these so-called machine guns. Let's look at the most prominent example that was enacted in 1994 and then expired after 10 years. There have been studies trying to see if it had any material effect on crime. Apparently, it didn't. 
none that could be measured. How were mach- those machine guns defined? This is proposed by, uh, by the Clinton administration. They were defined as semi-automatic weapons that have at least two of the following features. Bayonet logs, folding stocks, pistol grips. These are basically cosmetic features. Now, I don't think that was such a big deal from a gun rights perspective because you could buy a gun that was just as effective for your self-defense purposes um, uh, that didn't have those features. And by the way, my colleague Adam Winkler, who's a supporter of gun controls, has written op-eds that say exactly this, saying the assault weapons uh, restrictions are a distraction because they have no real effect other than the symbolic. Uh, So that's an example of a law that I think is not a reasonable law. It's not a horrible law, but it's not reasonable in the sense that I think it's not reasonably calculated to actually work. Let me give you one other analogy. Uh, As a practical matter today, as best we can tell from all the court decisions, both the Supreme Court decisions and the many in lower courts. In fact, the courts do say, is this a reasonable restriction, especially if it's not a total ban? As to abortion restrictions, that's more or less the test that's being used as well, which is bans on abortion are unconstitutional, but reasonable restrictions are not. You look at groups that support abortion rights and they say, we oppose all these restrictions. And people fold them. Why are you being so unreasonable? Why are you being so extremist? And their answer is, first of all, we actually think all of these restrictions are unreasonable. But beyond that, we feel we know what the end game of many of our enemies is, and that's a total ban on abortion. So we feel we need to fight each one of them, because otherwise, if we concede on some, then our enemies aren't just well, going to give up. That certainly is the, the NRA strategy. They don't want to concede on anything, regardless of the reason. Historically, it's been the ACLU strategy as to various free speech questions and criminal procedure questions, as it has been abortion rights advocates uh, strategy as to others. Now, again, you may agree or disagree. You may either take the polar opposite position and actually support broadbands or support something in the middle. But yes, of course, advocacy groups that take seriously the rights that they're protecting, whether it's free speech rights or criminal defendants rights or abortion rights or gun rights, yes, they're going to be quite militant about this, partly because most of the restrictions that you may view as reasonable, they actually don't think are reasonable, and partly because they really are worried about the slippery slope. So and, you guys, just for a second, you, you're both literalists. Uh, to, literalists to you, well, in what sense? You, you, you're about the rule of law, and it's pretty black and white. You, no, you, well, not no, quite. Well, why me, why are me, you making me, me out to be that? Well, I mean, make, I support rule of law, but much of it is not black and white. And well, let, then, then and with these gun that, laws, and for that, let shouldn't, me make, we, shouldn't we, just for a second, Ed, shouldn't our governance of this country be designed to make our society a better place? At that level of generality, sure. And it should be true about abortion and it should be true about free speech and it should be true about criminal defendants' rights and it should be true about all sorts of things. Uh, so the question that always comes out is, what is likely to make our country a better place? Both in the general sense that sometimes giving the government some power, even if it gives uh, benefits in the short term, may cause harms in the long term. Do we but need all- in this case, in our time, do we need to have citizens bear arms and form a militia to protect us from our government? Well, so I actually think that as a practical matter, that's probably not going to be terribly effective today. Uh, And that's why, in fact, actually most of the debates about gun rights that come before the courts do not involve uh, organized groups with guns, even though there is a plausible argument that that is actually an important part of the constitutional history and tradition. That's not what the cases are about. The cases are about another component, which 
state constitutions expressly recognize, and uh, the Heller decision says the Second Amendment implicitly recognizes, which is the right to keep and bear arms in defense of oneself and family and property often and the like, uh, and home, for example, and the like. And that I do think we need uh, to be able to defend ourselves. There's a famous line that people use, I think it's quite apt, uh, uh, when uh, seconds count, the police are only minutes away. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Bill, I'd say your main beef is not really with the Second Amendment here. Your main beef is with state legislatures or maybe the no, federal, federal Congress. Yeah. Or the federal Congress, but either state legislatures. And if you live in Georgia or someplace with a very expansive uh, conceal and carry law. Or it could be Oregon be, or Washington. Or their beef. Um, you do have a beef with them because you don't think they're passing strict enough restrictions on guns. For but, the betterment of society. For the betterment of society. But that is not really a Second Amendment issue. So because even But the Second Amendment while, is no, used to no, argue the, that process. But virtually all of the things you're talking about were enacted, and some states have them. The court would uphold them as reasonable, that it wouldn't be stopped by the Second Amendment. Now, I agree with you as a rhetorical device, the NRA is wrapping itself in the Second Amendment. But as a court would do, I think most of the things you or I would think would be reasonable for a city or a state to adopt, the courts would say that doesn't violate the Second Amendment. So I don't really think your beef is with the Second Amendment. Your beef is with Congress and certain state legislators. It's like we think guns, but instead we use the word Second Amendment as if as if uh, that kind of captures captures the big picture. And it doesn't quite. It turns out that trying to prevent crimes, very serious crimes, which are overwhelmingly committed by people who are professional criminals, is really hard. So to take an extreme example, which are actually often not committed by professional criminals, but are committed by people who are obviously highly motivated, mass shootings, you have to ask yourself, how is it that we can stop a mass shooting through laws against gun possession or gun acquisition or gun carrying when this person is willing to ignore laws against murder? And how do we do that in a country that has 300 million guns in it? Maybe there's something we could do to try to give better mental health services or lock people up if they seem dangerous. Interesting questions. But as best I can tell, there's virtually nothing that can be done by way of gun controls to solve that. What about ordinary crimes? What about ordinary street crimes? That's different because those people aren't bent on murder. Maybe they could be deterred on the borderline. But at the same time, if the gun is their tool of the trade, maybe there's not a lot to be done. These are interesting questions could be had. So, for example... Another thing that people talk about is what about suicide? Uh, Because it turns out that the great majority... I think that's a ridiculous law that that is illegal. So it may be. So one possible answer is if people want to commit suicide... Unless you fall on someone else. Right. If people want to commit suicide with guns, we shouldn't be even trying to stop that because if there are adults... Well, I don't particularly want those people to own guns, so I I would have to say... I don't agree with that. Well, well but so, there's a the danger of people in a home, a kid in a home getting a gun and shooting so, so, his friend or shooting his parents. Right, right, right I'm sorry. That, but that, that's accident or homicide. I'm talking about specifically about suicide. I'm just giving it as an example that if you want to try to prevent suicides with guns, then you basically have to ban all guns. It's, it's particularly clear that you don't need a, an assault weapon to commit suicide. If you ban all handguns. I do believe that if you buy a gun collection... 
and Sonny Boy grabs one of those guns and goes and and offs a school bus of people. I believe you, as the owner of those guns, has the responsibility. In that case, you should be liable. That's, in fact, the current rule, that you are civilly liable, and in many states, you'd be criminally liable, too. So, the, interestingly, that's not that different from the way we deal with cars. How do we deal with cars? We generally ban their misuse. We do have a certain amount of preliminary licensing, but the general way is it's illegal for you to misuse them. It's illegal for you to drive drunk. If you kill someone with it or injure someone with it, you could be prosecuted or sued. It turns out that pretty much all those laws also apply to guns as well. Well, that's it. A special thank you to Eugene Volokh and Ed Larson for pretty remarkable insights that certainly withstand the test of time. And since that episode was recorded, we have some new trends to report. A bit harder to swallow, however. According to the Washington Post, during the last year of COVID, Americans purchased about 23 million guns, and that's a 64% increase over 2019. There are no easy solutions here, so whatever your position is on the issue, knowledge is power. And after listening to all this, at very least, you're going to be more interesting at dinner. By the way, if you have time, given that Congress is hip deep in discussions around Joe Biden's infrastructure package, if you haven't listened to our episode 64 with Stephanie Kelton, she describes modern monetary theory. It's a great episode describing a vastly more palatable way such a trillion dollar package can be paid for. Make sure you check it out. Don't forget to hit the follow button so you don't have to hunt around for the next episode of Meet Me in the Middle. Thanks again to our producer and editor, Joey Salvia. Music for Meet Me in the Middle is composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. And the executive producer for this episode is Stuart Halpern. Bye-bye, everybody. It will be okay. From Kirkco Media. Media for your mind.